0: the space for the hotel room existed, undefined. Mankind captured it, gave it shape, and passed through. And sometimes, in passing through, they found themselves brushing up against the secret names of truth.
1: Welcome to Now Playing's review of Hotel Room, part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. We've got, got news for you guys. <laughs> hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Arnie. That
2: Chinese fish was sure right about that.
1: These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Oh, shit the shit listener discretion is advised now guess what happens give it to me
3: today we're discussing hotel room starring clark heathcliff brawley carmilla over by ruse <laughs> are these people or are just random words you picked out of a
0: dictionary where's the actors i know <laughs> who's <Where's> crispin glover <laughs>
3: all right here's the guest stars for individual episodes those two were actually the stars of the series but then guest starring griffin dunn crispin glover glenn Hadley, freddie jones deborah unger alicia witt and mariska (laughs) Wait, what about harry dean stanton (laughs) and harry dean stanton and all right directed by david lynch twice and james signorelli once this is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, ready to check out.
0: Stewart in LA. And this is the host that always recommends buying the housewares after marriage, Jacob.
3: Failure.
2: <laughs> is that your recommend? <laughs> <laughs> No, Jacob, whatever I think of the movie, it can't be undersold how devastating the year 1992 was for David Lynch. Twin Peaks premiered at the Cannes Film Festival to hatred and booze and did terrible box office and...
3: Firewalk with me to clarify.
2: Yes, yes, right. Yeah, Twin Peaks is long, long. The heyday of that 19 months ago has faded, and now, yeah, we're dealing with the fact that the movie spinoff did terribly. The people that financed Lynch wanted to renegotiate. They didn't want to give him money for Running Rocket and all the projects he had lined up to do. And all his TV series were failing. And however badly Twin Peaks went... You know, yes, they shoved it on Saturday nights in its second season, and it did go into the cellar. That's nothing compared to American Chronicles. You guys even know the series? Nope. Yeah, it's one of the Lynch Frost TV series. It actually was running on Fox the half hour before Twin Peaks was on, on those Saturday nights. And here's the concept. It's a documentary series narrated by Richard Dreyfuss. ...about how wacky America is. You know that Mark Frost likes secret histories, Arnie. You're reading that history of Twin Peaks.
3: It sounds like the Yakov Smirnoff show.
2: Well, he wanted to do that for all parts of the country. So, New Orleans and a gun show, and he would do profiles of people. George Foreman had an episode. Hugh Hefner had an episode. It does
0: sound kind of interesting.
2: (laughs) It's not. I'm here to tell you, I only made it through the pilot... And that was the New Orleans episode. Yeah, it would be interesting. Part of the problem, there were many. Part of the problem is is that they didn't want to do any of the research. They didn't have the tools <laughs> to do a heavy study of these areas. So they were going to rely on poetic visuals. It was kind of like if you ever saw Kawaniscazi or some of these wordless documentaries where it's just, you know, lush time-lapse photography. Except it isn't lush Time-lapse photography. It's very crude. Looks like cops or America's Most Wanted video footage. It's ugly to behold. So you're watching essentially what looks like someone's home movie walking around the Mardi Gras parade. And (laughs) Richard Dreyfuss occasionally would say something about Creoles. You know, nothing. Nothing good came out of it. It was the lowest rated series of all series that ran in the 1990-91 season. It hit the very bottom. There couldn't have been a bigger failure than America Chronicles. That wasn't the same year as Whoops, was it? (laughs) It wasn't. No, that and that was, I think, the champion of whatever year that popped out on Fox. (laughs) Fox, you know, to be fair, it got low numbers because it didn't have as many stations throughout this country. It just didn't reach as many areas of the population. But even given that, nobody on Saturday night was interested in what Richard Dreyfuss, David Lynch, and
3: Mark Frost thought about America. They just didn't care. In his defense, I mean, that was the same night that Fox was having success with America's Most Wanted. That was one of their top-rated shows and one of their early shows that started when Fox was a newborn network and lasted a decade or more. I mean, that was a Saturday night staple. So... More nonfiction to pair with it makes sense on paper. Yeah, and right before Twin Peaks, I knew about it at the time, and I was like, I ain't watching this. I mean,
2: (laughs) I couldn't have been a bigger diehard fan of Twin Peaks, and even that love did not carry over into anything Lynch touched. It wasn't like I was just going to blindly follow them
3: in any direction. And I didn't even know this series existed.
2: (laughs) Well, it only lasted six weeks, so you'd be forgiven to not notice. It was gone by the end of 1990. But they weren't done screwing up yet because ABC did greenlight another series and one that I also watched one episode of on the air. It was on the air for three weeks in summer of 1992 on Saturday nights. Big expectations. You could tell ABC wanted it to do well, dumping it in this ground, but not a bad start, anyway. Uh, It is basically Twin Peaks. If you took away all the weirdness and murder and just made it about Andy, Lucy, and Dick and all that wacky slapstick comedy of the second season. Has a lot of the same actors, a lot of the same screenwriters and directors. The premise is basically, it's 1957, and Dick Tremaine, uh, the actor Ian Buchanan, was this washed-up movie star who had to do a live TV show with this Lucille Ball like bimbo and she ended up being more popular than he was and they were always at each other's throats. Miguel Ferrer pops up as a cranky network executive. Squiggy's there as a director that nobody can understand what he's saying because of his accent. The pilot is hysterical. If you can find that opening 30 minutes, David Lynch directed it and it really sings. I, I watched it three times. I enjoyed it so much. The other episodes, I did get a copy of of all seven that were made. Only two more were broadcast. But I saw the whole run of the series... And much like the complaint is about Twin Peaks, when Lynch is not there, it just didn't have the spark that was in its beginnings. It just didn't make sense. And a lot of people just couldn't make that premise continue. It really was basically Radioland murders on a weekly basis. And I think that only works in small doses with with David Lynch, the creator behind that. But big failure there. Obviously, you guys didn't see it. I don't know that anyone needs to,
3: but the pilot's good. So, I guess my question is, if Lynch had all these failed television shows, why the hell are we even talking about Hotel Room? Why aren't we talking about these others? What ho- makes Hotel Room so goddamn special that we're devoting a <laughs> week to it? Because he
2: couldn't even make it as a TV series. Things had gone so badly. They shot this in the same summer. It was it came out... About a month after the Cannes fiasco with Firewalk With Me, and about a month before On The Air totally went down in flames, uh, they just shot all this very, very quickly. And then when it came time to package it and go to the markets and say, hey, who wants to air this series? Crickets. They couldn't find any takers. The UK, which had been a big market for Twin Peaks, refused to air it. They obviously saw it. France didn't want it. France, I don't think, aired it. It ended up coming, in America at least, packaged as a cable TV movie. HBO made Hotel Room technically. <laughs> but basically, I think they just picked it up cheap and ran it. I did see it in its initial run. I do remember sitting there with my mom, and I even remember our at- reactions, being able to share that. It did get a laugh. We did both totally crack up. I'll tell you where it is. I'm not sure we were laughing for it or against it, but it did get a reaction out of us. I've never forgotten it, and I felt like if we're here to talk about all the David Lynch movies... Eh, I mean, it's debatable, I suppose, but this is probably his least seen, his least loved, and maybe it should be reevaluated as such. Maybe it doesn't deserve that. So I thought maybe it was time to give it a reevaluation.
3: Now, did this air as a movie? I read this aired as a miniseries over two nights. Nope, that's not true. It aired in a big chunk of all three at once.
2: Now, that might have been in some markets. Maybe somewhere in this world, they did do that.
3: Yeah, I just said on HBO, it aired one episode, the pilot episode on January 8th, and then the other two back-to-back on the 9th.
2: When I saw it, and it may have been a rerun, they were all together. And so, to, in my mind, it's not a TV series or even a miniseries.
3: And I suppose we have a precedent for this. This was released on VHS... It is hard to find now, but it is on YouTube. Somebody took their VHS tape and digitized it.
0: That's how I saw it,
3: yeah. Mm -hmm. So, the others never had official release, right? This is the one that had official quote-unquote movie release. And I'd say we're... About as movie territory as we are when we did Stephen King's Dollar Babies. But, shit, we're here.
2: On the Air, did come out on VHS as well. But that was a TV series. There was never a packaging as a movie. So, you can find that one floating out there. It's not on YouTube that I could find. I did have to actually hunt it down at a video store. But, it exists. But, yeah, Hotel Room. What is this? Well, I would say that it probably is one of the least Lynchian of the movies we're covering. He commissioned it. He and the guy who helped produce the TV series Twin Peaks said, let's give it a go with another TV series. Let's keep the budget real low. (laughs) (laughs) Success.
3: (laughs) This is high school stage play budget low other than the cast they have. So yeah, (laughs) it's very
2: minimalist. I I will be kind. I'm going to, I'm going to go high. (laughs) The concept is, if you don't know, if you're wondering what the hell we're talking about, I saw it and I'm still wondering. David Lynch likes to explore the uniqueness and the weirdness of the average. And he thought hotel rooms, this is a place that a lot of people use without thinking and dramatic things can happen there. And my friend Barry Gifford, the novelist who wrote Wild at Heart, ...was born in a hotel room. He grew up in them in Chicago. His parents were mobsters and he saw a lot of stuff. So he'd be able to tell some very dramatic stories if we just have this hotel with the same room at different eras... And we just, that's the character. The character is the hotel room, room 603, and the bellboy and maid. They never age. I don't know if this place is like the Overlook and they're ghosts, or whether that would be weirdness that would be explained later in the series and they just didn't get to it, but that is the premise for Hotel Room. And HBO, it should be said, was not HBO at the time. I mean, they did not have Sopranos and Sex and the City and all Game of Thrones. They didn't have high-profile TV series or or movies. They were hurting. I think what they had on the air, the best thing they had going was Tales from the Crypt. And then there was Dream On and First and Ten, which was like a football sitcom. So did it hurt them to pick this up cheap and put it out there? I don't know. It sounds like it hurt you guys to go through it. Well,
3: thanks for that I didn't get the premise from the credits. I really thought we were going to be watching like a Twilight Zone, the way we start with David Lynch. He has a very unique voice, and I know it just from Twin Peaks alone if I hadn't been hearing him on all these interviews and things, but he's talking about a railroad through millennia or
2: something. Here's what he says. For a millennium... The space for the hotel existed undefined. Basically, he's just saying before there was a building, there was a a place of energy. Kind of makes me think about some of the White Lodge, Black Lodge stuff that he was talking about. An ancient, powerful, spiritual place. Mankind gave it shape and passed through. And sometimes in passing through, they found themselves brushing up against the secret names of truth. I get it. Real pretentious way of saying, hey, we created a space in which a lot of people come and go, and sometimes secret truth is revealed.
3: And I read that as like an opening to a Twilight Zone. I'm like, oh my god, this is a supernatural hotel. Things are going to happen here. It's like a mystical Indian burial ground that was always magical, and we just happened to build a hotel on here. Nope. Well, I I think it is. There are
0: twists that are barely there talking about this being minimalist. There are little twists. So it could be twilight zone light. Yeah, that's uh, it's a stretch I know. I'm just I'm I see it there.
3: It's not even monsters. It's not even that no, no, no. If you're expecting
0: ghost and that kind of stuff, wrong movie.
2: I think the maid and the bellboy are ghosts.
3: Well, I'm expecting twist endings and ironies, and you mentioned Tales from the Crypt, you know, those kinds of short story things. And if you're going to start talking about a spiritual place, I'm expecting something weird to happen. Remember that goddamn Bates Motel TV thing we reviewed? That's what I'm expecting. (laughs) Yeah,
2: to clarify, not the A&E TV series, but the 80s wanted to be a TV series, but just ended up being a TV movie. Yeah, Bud Court inherited Yeah, the Bates Motel. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It's a cool premise. I really like the concept. That's probably why they got the starter money to to make this pilot. But you want to make sure that particularly in your first episode, it's a grabber. You want to have big stakes and big dramatic twists. And yes, maybe something supernatural to really send home that this is a strange place for a millennium. I think what they tried to do here is much more in the tradition of theater and not Twilight Zone.
3: Oh, yes. As in a single stage, a single set. Yeah.
2: So we get something very different. How do you want to do the plot, Arnie? Should we go episode by episode? Sure.
3: The first episode is called Tricks, and each of these is set in a different year. This one's in 1969, and features Harry Dean Stanton as Moe, a man going to a hotel room with his hooker Darlene. But they're interrupted by Lou, an old frenemy of Moe's. After Lou screws Darlene on Moe's dime, the two men tell stories, mostly about Phyllis, a woman who was Moe's wife, but ran off and had Lou's baby. After Darlene leaves... Mo rambles on about a Chinese delivery job he had while Lou slips a wallet in Mo's coat. Lou leaves and police raid the room. The wallet identifies Mo as Lou, and this case of mistaken identity causes the police to charge Mo with the murder of Phyllis as we go to story two.
2: Okay, tricks. Well, one of the tricks is it's a title with multiple meanings. The first and most obvious meaning of that is it's a man who's bringing a hooker to a hotel room. The way this starts is he seems very nervous about whatever is about to go down with Arlene. It's Arlene or
0: Darlene? Darlene, not Arlene. That's the line.
2: Yeah, okay, see? Yeah, he <laughs> couldn't get it right and apparently I can't either. But that is the way that this episode begins with a really tense guy we wonder is he married is he never been with a hooker before she breaks out some marijuana it's 1969 and he's a suit middle-aged he may just not have much experience with sex outside of his household i mean that is a real a time when when all the sexual experimentation was going on with a younger generation than harry didn't stand
3: yeah he'd be what uh a Greatest generation type person grew up during the depression type to be, yeah, in his forties at this time. And you know, this episode is about 30 minutes long. They are going to drip the information. I mean, the two arrive in the hotel room and they're put there by the bellboy, played by Hearth Heathcliff Brawley, who is the star of the series. (laughs) Listen, the thing I kept going back to is, and I know it came out a decade later, But four rooms. No, not a decade. About two years later. Oh, only two years. Yeah. Clark Heathcliff Brawley is our Tim Roth here, only not nearly as charming or impactful.
0: Look, Tim Roth way overacted in four rooms. I could have gone for some overacting in hotel room. (laughs)
2: Oh, see, and I was going to go the other way. Whatever you think of of Clark's <laughs> performance here, he's better than Tim Roth in that movie. I mean, Tim Roth
3: tried too hard.
0: Look, th- this may be the star. He's barely in this. I know he keeps <laughs> showing up to the hotel rooms, but I wouldn't call him the star of hotel room.
3: Would you call Rod Serling the star of Twilight Zone? I mean, I...
0: Yeah, he played a more pivotal part. This dude brings up the luggage.
3: Well, he brings Moe and Darlene to the room, and... I don't know that she's a prostitute right away. Are they a married couple? They're going into the room awfully casually, but he is acting a little bit on edge. Then again, it's Harry Dean Stanton. I've never really seen him give a, a performance where he isn't stuttering and a little bit exasperated.
0: You do get it, though, once he says the White Knight is going to take a journey to the Dark Forest. Oh, yeah, you got to yeah. pay tribute to the fair maiden.
3: Oh, yeah, I got that very clearly at a certain point, but it just it wasn't immediately obvious. This wasn't like she came in with the big hooker fur coat on and chewing gum. You know, she's not a stereotypical TV hooker. Well, she's like a 1969 hooker. Yeah, I,
2: I get what you're saying. Part of the reason why it was obvious to me initially was I read it that way. Literally read it that way. Hotel Trilogy was published a couple years after this ...appeared on HBO. I did hunt down a copy. It's Barry Gifford publishing the screenplays for the two episodes he wrote, this first episode and the last episode, and an unproduced episode. I'll talk at the end of this as well. So... I was able to read what he originally intended and what got changed by Lynch in the production. It's pretty much the same, but there was a whole lot more talking. If your complaint is that it's a lot of people jammering and nothing really going on...
3: Yep, that's my complaint.
2: <laughs> it's pared down from where it was originally.
3: Oh boy, wow, well. <laughs> Needed a little bit more pairing. But yeah, I didn't catch right away that she was a hooker. Of course, you know... I didn't realize this aired on HBO. I knew this was a TV series. So I was not sure how far this may or may not go. Actually, this episode here doesn't have much harsh language. There's no nudity throughout, but they could have gone further, I suppose. There is some cursing later on.
0: And I don't know if they'd show this on, you know, there is a sex scene. It's not graphic. I don't know if that would get on network TV. Maybe Fox.
3: Yeah, I think that even
2: showing drug use is a problem for network TV. It would have to be cable. But I also think that, you know, with network TV, where would would you put the commercials? What are the cliffhangers? (laughs) How do you? It's not made for that. They were making something else here. The next trick I think that we get is that there is a man at the door. And it's someone that Mo knows. And they seem to be up to something.
0: And, and I got to say, I did get excited here. Like, talk about, you know, if you're looking for a cliffhanger, when Mo starts freaking out, what are you doing here now? It's not right. Like, I'm like, okay, we're, we're up in the tension. We're up in the conflict.
3: I'll agree. I figured that maybe, again, I wasn't even sure Darlene was a hooker. I thought maybe Mo was on the run with Darlene and Lou is coming after him. And I still kind of get the fact that Lou is chasing him. How does he know what room he's in? All right. I went to an immediate... Conclusion. I thought for sure we were watching a fight
0: club. They're both the same person. I'm right there with you. That was my assumption when Lou showed up.
3: I like that reading so much better, but unfortunately. Darlene keeps saying you guys and talking to them separately she She does she said you guys so she's seeing two separate people which completely ruins my preferred reading of this and makes it just dumb
0: because the way it's shot and look whenever this camera does move I noticed it and they do this cool shot where it's in the reflection of the mirror so I'm like okay this is the same person talking to himself because hey look it's not a static shot that we've had this whole time thus far and yeah the way that you go to that sex scene and the camera just pans over to Moe, Harry Dean Stanton, sitting on the edge of the bed talking. I'm like, that's really weird. That He's not existing right now. He's really Lou at this point.
2: Yeah, and Lou, I just want to point out as an actor we've seen in Lynch before, Freddie Jones. Probably most famously, he was the guy that abused the elephant man, and then he also had, like many other people, a walk on in Dune, and he pops up in on the air as well. Lynch likes him and uses him, and usually as a malevolent force, usually as someone that, I don't know, I get a reading when Lou shows up, something bad is going to happen. What I thought was curious about their dialogue, was that Harry Dean Stanton's Mo kept saying, what are you doing here now? Not what are you doing here? Why are you in this room while I'm trying to get with a hooker? Why are you here now? He was expected later. So the trick is, I think, going to be on this hooker, that they have something planned to do to her and as they continue to talk to one another they keep talking about murdering
3: women it seems to be that after the fun of the bedroom she's gonna get whacked Ooh, i hadn't read it like that i just never thought mo was happy to see lou so i did get that he said why are you here now because that's a weird thing to add but I never got that he was expecting him at all.
0: Yeah, and what's weird is Lou is also, did you pay her yet? Like, he knew why this woman was there. He knew it was going down. I did have a lot, like, when, when not that there's murder going on, but they do talk about a dead actress who, like, did perfume ads. This is Lynch weaking at us, right? He, he did those perfume ads. I, I thought that was funny.
2: If it is, I think that it's done through the guise of Barry Gifford. This is how he writes. If you were to read those Sailor and Lula novels, they're filled with people that tell each other stories that really don't necessarily have a point don't necessarily go anywhere they're just filled with local color
0: which explains this entire tv series
2: i do feel like if you don't like what's going on in this room you probably ought to blame barry gifford more than lynch lynch is not sharing any screenwriting credit in any of these episodes
0: yeah but i could also blame lynch for just not even moving that camera like everything is so static again this is why every time that camera moved i wrote it down because it happens so rarely
3: yeah this This thing, honestly, just to jump to the conclusion, no matter what dialogue is said, no matter what happens in the story, this thing is really uninterestingly shot. It's an uninteresting set design because they're trying to make a generic hotel room. It really does feel like something you'd see on a very low budget stage production. And then it is so much goddamn monologuing that my brain started to go numb. So there is absolutely nothing redeemable about this series. I'll just put that up front. Nothing redeemable.
2: <laughs> uh, well, then let me try. Uh, because I, I, I'm hearing the hostility, and I, I anticipated it, frankly. I, re- I remember <laughs> feeling it to a degree. To the set direction, I want to say, I think it looks like a Lynch world. It reminded me a lot of Dorothy Valen's apartment. It did have that quality of being an otherworldly place cheap, sure, but so did her apartment. It's a rundown down hotel. It, I don't know if this hotel was ever in style. It's next to the train station, and there's always bleed-over noise. You can always hear screeching at dramatic parts and train whistles, and it usually amps up the tension. But I actually like the environment, and I like this concept. Now, do I like this episode, and do I like the tricks? Well, as I said, I felt real menace was going on in this room until the hook is like, you guys are weird and I'm getting out of here. And then once it's once she's gone, it's like, well, what are they going to do? I mean, their dialogue, the way I read that, I mean, they are saying things like, it could have happened, Lou. We came close. They talk about this wife, Felicia, who, I mean, Lou makes the comment. It's all in the little dialogue. You got to pay attention to what's inferenced, that she didn't know which end of a gun a bullet came out of. So I'm taking it to be from all that's exchanged here is that Mo was married to Felicia and Lou, his friend shot her and killed her. That's what I'm picking up out of this. And now that's a fun thing that they do to women that they pick up and bring to rundown motels.
0: And I'll say this with the dialogue out of the three episodes, I like it the most here. I could really use a Tarantino or someone like that sprucing this up again with the tricks. I'll speak to this one specifically since we're discussing, but like, you know, when Darlene does her R O C K E T S cheer and some of the stuff is fun, but the big shock is that. I thought the whole time Lou's talking about this woman and his son that, oh, that's his wife. But the big twist, I guess, is that, no, it was Mo's wife. That And that's why I assumed they were the same person is that Lou has been telling the story the whole time. And that was supposed to be the reveal. That's why I read this as Lou and Mo being the same. Because when Mo goes, no, that's my wife that died Oh, he's been talking about this through another person to distance himself.
2: It's contradicted. I don't think we have a clear definition of who Felicia is. Maybe she's the figment of the imagination and didn't happen. What I read into this, what I saw that was coming, this Lou guy seems to know a lot about this hooker. Like he was telling her things that she did leading up to coming to New York that he shouldn't have known. I suddenly got the idea that they had profiled her and picked her specifically because she had screwed over the son, Arthur. They even said the boyfriend you tried to kill was
3: his name, Arthur. But are they just guessing? I mean, she says no. I thought for sure that, yes, that's where it was going, is they were going for revenge over one of their sons and but no they're just nuts
0: my reading was is that they were looking for whatever woman they kind of knew some details that ran off with whoever son it was and this was their modus operandi
2: yeah let me just throw something out there because I think it's probably helpful just to know that this exists as a form of entertainment that people go to Harold Pinter Samuel Beckett Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. There is a whole tradition in theater that it gets kind of labeled comedy of menace or theater of the absurd. It basically means that you watch a play in which it's pretty banal. Either it's a homecoming or a birthday party. There's one called The Dumb Waiter where it's just two hitmen waiting to be told it's time to do the hit, and you just observe all this banal banter and sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's laced with menace and it builds up to an anticlimax in which you're not sure even what you watched i think that the aspiration here is to honor those theater greats by creating an environment in which yeah we i walk away i think the confusion is intentional I don't know what just happens, but I was worried for that woman.
0: My question is, who tipped off the cops? Well, I assumed it was the hooker. That she runs out of there, and then the, and then Lou's like, you gotta go, you gotta go, I'm out of here, you gotta go. And Mo doesn't, though, and the police catch up to him.
2: It's the final trick, and I think actually it's Lou pulling it on Mo. Because you, as, as Mo is telling some absurd story about when he was 12 years old and delivering Chinese food to a woman that tried to seduce him, Lou is acting like he's interested, but he's really taking out his wallet and all this ID information and he's planting it on the nightstand. That is the stuff that is going to get Mo arrested when the cops barge in later. So I think this is a friend's betrayal.
0: There's just no setup for why the cops would rush in to find Felicia's murderer unless, again, it was the hooker because she was freaking out for her life. I don't think she knew enough about Felicia.
3: I took it was all Lou. I thought that everything was a setup by Lou. I mean, Lou puts his wallet in Mo's pants or coat, and Lou has obviously doctored a driver's license because they say that it's Mo's photo on Lou's driver's license. They look at Mo and say, that's him. That's the photo on the license. So Lou has done this all. So Mo will take the fall theoretically for a murder Lou did it's the 60s so perhaps we can assume they don't have the best forensics to uh, he said she said kind of thing and so i think Lou set up the cops to come too but yet he also tells mo don't hang around too long so is he telling mo you better get the hell out of here hint hint or is it that he's merely playing games because he's torturing this guy i mean in the end mo has been Basically belittled by Lou his entire life. Moe's wife went on trips with Lou, had Lou's baby, and now Lou killed her and Moe's going to take the fall for it. Moe's a schlub. He's a born loser. And I think the intention, again, is when people
2: tend to write things like this, they love the fact that we aren't sure what we watched. Three different people are going to see three different storylines and none of them totally cohere, that none of them feel completely satisfying or definitive. That is the style of this kind of play. So while it may not succeed for you as entertainment, it does succeed in
3: its aspirations. Then its aspirations are too low for my taste and they should aim higher.
2: I do think, though, I know you're a fan of Lost Highway. I think this is a warm up to that.
3: Don't. Say that because people now will think Lost Highway sucks if they happen to go to YouTube and watch this and you're telling them it's this really awesome movies warm up. No. Hey, I thought this was the
0: best segment out of the three we're going to talk
3: about.
2: Well, that's true. Yeah, I think Barry Gifford, who did write with Lynch, the difference is Lynch did not write this. He asked Barry Gifford to turn this in. I don't think he had a lot of time. This feels like a first draft. This feels like, okay, well, now we kind of got the premise. Let's finesse this, except we don't have time to finesse this. We're shooting it right now. It was all done very quickly, a couple weeks in June 1992. And so what we see here is the story of two men who may be the same man who may have killed one's wife. And parsing out what's real and what's not is the premise of Lost Highway. So in that respect alone, I think it was worth it as an experiment for these two getting their ideas down on paper. Whether I wanted to watch it, I don't know, I shrug. I think that this is, because I'm familiar with the traditions of theater that it's coming from, it's a passable ripoff. But I think it could have been a lot funnier and it could have escalated to a lot more tension at the end. I don't mind not understanding what happened, but I did want to feel more.
3: I
0: do have to ask because one thing that added to the tension of this segment is... This Battle lamente back to doing the score? Yep. Okay, because this sounded like those very moody synths that they'd play with Laura's theme. And I know when we get to the next segment, you got that jazzy tune that I would associate with Audrey. So very recognizable.
2: Well, let's move on to something lighter and something not Lynch. Yes. Getting rid of Robert is the second episode, made in June nineteen ninety-two. When it was shot. It was current. They shot it at the time it was set.
0: I've never seen Sex in the City, but I gotta imagine it, it's probably like this, but shot better.
3: Shot better, better acted, more interesting characters. <laughs> but hey, this it does have a one-up because Griffin Dunn greater than Chris Noth. But <laughs> <laughs> this one's Stars a spoiled woman named Sasha, played by Deborah Unger, is awaiting the arrival of her boyfriend Robert, played by Griffin Dunn. She plans on dumping the man as he won't commit to marriage, and Sasha has found a new beau. Sasha is joined by her friends Tina and Diane, but they break the news to Sasha that her new beloved has actually gone off and gotten married in the two weeks since their date. But still, Sasha plans on dumping Robert, who finally arrives. But Robert turns the tables and dumps Sasha first because she's such a bitch. Sasha then begs him to give her another chance, and when he turns to leave, she clubs him with a fire poker. Chekhov's really annoying fire poker. (laughs) Bleeding on the ground, the two reconcile and agree to give their relationship another chance as we go to story three. Yeah.
2: Uh, James Signorelli. I looked him up, didn't know who he was, and then it really made sense. Skits. Saturday Night Live. He had been really a big involved in that entire run of that series, writing from its original inception. And this does feel very much more like a skit than a play. It feels like there's a very much a punchline to it.
0: This would have been a super sharp segment if it was only about five minutes long, like an SNL skit.
2: Well, SNL, those skits tend to go on too long uh, (laughs) as well. It's my opinion of them.
0: They don't go a half hour, though.
2: (laughs) They don't go half an hour, but they'll go about 15 minutes when they should go five.
3: And only after the news. Before the news, they still keep it pretty tight. But yes, this is, you're right, right there with McGruber and... All those Saturday Night Live skits that should never have been made into movies because they were good at five minutes. This, I don't even know if this would have been good at five minutes, but nonetheless, we get it for 30.
2: It's also worth pointing out it was written by Jay McInerney, who is part of a whole clique of writers that were big at this time. Uh, Less Than Zero, Slaves of New York. There was a whole cachet of writers who were just writing about being young, rich on cocaine and yuppies.
3: I saw Bright Lights, Big City, and I didn't like it then. Yeah, well, no one likes the movie, and maybe no one liked the book,
2: but he it got him a lot of fame. And I think that if these people seem callous and privileged and awful... That's his world. That's what he writes about. He doesn't know anything else. And so what we're seeing here is, I guess, satire. In satire, we don't have to like the characters. We just have to enjoy hating them. And I'll go ahead and say it. I didn't mind this episode. It's... Basically, a parody of what relationships were for yuppies in 1992. They're just out to use one another. She thinks she's going to break up with him because he won't give a ring, and he wants to break up with her because she's such a bitch.
0: Again, if this was shorter, I would have enjoyed it more. It's just the writing's not sharp enough for the length these are. Again, there's moments I chuckle but it's just not sharp writing that can carry the length that they want to run it.
2: I, what I enjoy about it is it's a time capsule. Like, basically, here's this woman. She checks into the hotel, much like the last episode. The bellboy brings her in. She's terrible
3: to the help. We see that as well to the maid.
0: I love that she blames the maid for
3: almost taking out her eye with that cork. You know what? That maid should be fired. Who points a bottle of champagne at somebody? When I opened champagne,
0: maybe she was really going for her.
3: Come on, she did it on purpose. We get a
2: cutscene. This woman and is mouthing off about what she's entitled to, that maid doesn't want to hear
3: that. But yeah, she probably should be fired. The maid's hired help and needs to get over it.
0: <laughs> and she's been there since the hotel's open. Ooh, spooky.
3: <laughs> she's been there for a millennia. So poor
2: <laughs> thing. Yeah, she didn't want to hear this privileged Sheeran Stone want to be. I definitely take Deborah Kara Unger as Basic Instinct had just opened a few months before. And this is that stereotype. The man hungry. I want it all. I'm in control. I don't think we're supposed to like Sasha, but I think we're supposed to enjoy that she is going to break up with this guy. I think that's what we're to want, is that he sounds horrible. He's cheating on her. He lives in L.A. and thinks he's a big shot Hollywood guy, and he's been stringing her along. And so she's going
3: to finally end
2: it because
3: she doesn't want to be a bicoastal concubine. I don't think that's what a concubine is, but... A concubine's the other woman. I Yeah, mean, yeah. It, yeah.
2: I mean, then her friends come up. They're hanging out there, and she thinks she has some time because this plane isn't due for a couple more hours. I just thought it was fun as a timepiece. I mean, Camille Paglia, they give her a book that she was a, a writer who had these really outrageous ideas, art and decadence. Uh, they talk about the harpies. I think that it's basically the guy is parroting Camille Paglia. So if you don't know who that is or don't want to know, probably this segment and all of this girl talk is lost on you. But these are harpies as Camille Paglia would describe them.
3: And one of them is Marissa Hargitay, who before she was a curse in Mike Myers, the love guru, was Law & Order SVU here in a very early before she was famous role
2: yeah looking much you know not to say she isn't a beautiful woman on the tv series now but she's definitely got more spunk she's the one of the three that is least interested in hooking a man she's like i'm just going to build my home without one i'm into buying antiques i'm so excited i bought this fireplace poker
3: yeah that is a really weird thing to buy i thought at the time i'm like that's really weird to buy it's even weirder to bring to a hotel room and weirdest still the way it gets used
2: well you You know, she said she had just come from an auction. So it's an antique. She had bid on it.
3: She couldn't leave it in the car? She's got to show it off. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, and
2: again, this is what yuppies do. They have too much money. They buy things they don't need. And then they brag to other people who don't care that they own it. And so that's what we're getting here. It's it's kind of ugly to behold, but maybe a little bit fun. I mean, it is getting a a peek at the rich and and feeling maybe affirmed if you don't like the way that they use their money. We're we're having confirmation, and she's so not into the relationship. I mean, they making dialogue about how they'd rather watch Arsenio than get a kiss. And so yeah, if I'm with any of these girls, I'm with Mariska or Tina because she's the one that. She's been there, she's done it, and she's over it. And so she's just not going to get involved. And I think that the young one, Diane, is like trying to hook the guy that Sasha wants to dump. Robert ends up coming in early and I think she's trying to flirt with him.
0: Again, that's, I guess, humorous thing. Again, I was kind of chuckling or had a a smile on my face it's not great funny haha stuff but yeah when Robert's there and the way you know he used to have a thing with Tina you found out and Sasha's surprised by that and yeah the way that Robert's just flirting with all of them and Diane is basically like, here's my number for when you guys bring mm-hmm. up so we can hook up. Like I again, I enjoy yeah, if you want to just watch rich bitchy yuppie people, this tone's right.
2: Yeah, that's what we're watching. That's what this is. And name dropping, he's talking about all the deal he's making. Did you pick out who's who? Wynona and Johnny? Yes, I did catch those. I didn't Mel and Michelle? I didn't get those. Gibson and Pfeiffer. And then Kevin and Kim. I had to think hard on Kim. Basinger.
3: Oh. Um, <laughs> the only I actually just thought the first were fake names until they got to Johnny and Winona. Those two, I mean Edward Scissorhands was around this time. In 1992,
2: you, maybe they could go by first names, but Kevin is not Kevin anymore. He's Kevin Costner, the (laughs) has-been in Hidden Figures. I, I don't think of people think of him as a, as a big leading star now. But again, this is the, what the preoccupations of these kinds of writers like Jay are that they just, they care about deals and who's famous and who's got money. The only thing we're not seeing here is cocaine. I'm really surprised that they just keep it (laughs) limited to champagne.
0: Yeah, I thought we'd get the drug of each era. In 1969, we got some pot, 92. I I, I guess cocaine was still around. It would have been better if it was the 80s.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, that certainly was where it came into America. But believe me, yeah, it was being used in Hollywood in 1992. And I think this scene would be more fun. If it had a more coked up energy, and that may be my complaint about all three episodes. If there was just more energy to all of it, I think that it would certainly help keep our attention. Because it is so minimalist and drab.
3: Yeah, at least there's different camera angles in this one. The last one was shot like an episode of Cheers with the camera pretty much in one place the whole time. Here, we're going to get POV bathroom door, POV window, POV entrance door, so...
2: There's a new piece of furniture. The room is more or less the same, but they have added in some time in the last, what, I guess it would be uh, 23 years, they've added a statue of two wrestlers, and they keep cutting it... Like these are the couples fighting one another.
3: I thought for sure somebody was going to get brained with that. I thought so for sure I. it was going to become a weapon. <laughs> I that completely skipped the poker. I just thought this wrestling statue is in center frame for so long that it would be used.
0: Yeah, one time Sasha walks up
3: and just stares at it. Yeah,
2: maybe that's a good thing then that your expectations were foiled. You thought something and then surprised they got you with the fireplace poker.
3: I kind of blame myself for thinking something.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, we can all agree that nothing Rod Serling, Supernatural, or Twilight Zone happens here, except that, yes, Callus Robert does eventually get beamed when he tries to break up with Sasha, and she's mad that either it's not her or that he doesn't want her. And so she takes him out.
0: He deserves it for not knowing how to spell ego. Mm.
2: And the maid gets to have the spit take when she walks in and sees Sasha dragging the guy. I think he's dead. You know, he's left a real good stain (laughs) on the carpet, but he eventually moans. And yeah, she's got to attend to this man while Sasha is complaining about all the ways that Robert has hurt her.
3: Yeah, this whole thing is not funny to me. Her about face is honestly predictable. The fact that he starts to dump her is the only amusing thing here. And then the fact that she'd start begging him, oh, I can change, I can change for this guy she doesn't want. Damn it, this was an episode of Seinfeld where George would say, I've got hand because he had the upper hand because he tried to dump the girl before she dumped him and made her basically subservient because she didn't want to be the dumpy and... Then the, the only thing that makes this at all outside of Seinfeld is, A, it's not funny, and B, there's blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, one of those comments is uh, somewhat
2: controversial. Many people love Seinfeld, Arnie, but...
3: No, I'm saying this is not funny.
2: No. Oh, that's why it isn't like Seinfeld. Well...
3: Yeah, Seinfeld is very funny. I love Seinfeld. I love that episode of Seinfeld. This is pathetic.
0: Again, I'm amused... I don't know if I'm in recommend territory,
3: but it's passing the time for me pleasantly. Really? Really? I honestly had to break up these episodes because I was just tortured.
0: Oh, I took breaks in between each episode. I, I won't lie there.
3: Oh my god. The minutes of this were dragging by like death row. I just couldn't believe that it just kept going and it does not help That the third story is the longest. They did not save the best for last.
2: (laughs) Some would argue that they did, but it's certainly the one in most different territory. We're going to go back in time for Blackout, April 1936, long before all of this room was a place for hookers and for lovers that don't commit to meat it was a place for a man to bring his wife and get her healthy
3: oh come on new york city there were hookers there in 1936 hookers have been in that room since before they made a space hookers filled it and then they built a hotel around it come on But in blackout, Crispin Glover, I thought there might be hope. I love Crispin Glover. I'm right there with you. (laughs) I thought that was going to carry you (laughs) through a little bit anyway. (laughs) Is an Oklahoma man in New York City in 1936 there with his wife, Diane, who has significant mental and memory problems. The city has a blackout remember when those used to happen and with the lights out the two sit by candlelight as Danny sorts through Diane's crazed ramblings and eventually it's revealed that while the two were having sex their son Dan Bug got out of bed went outside and drowned causing Diane's breakdown two years earlier. The lights come back on, mercifully, as credits roll. Yeah, this
2: one is a return for director David Lynch and writer Barry Gifford, but I don't feel like it has much of their style. I feel like if Barry Gifford was trying to make something creepy and menacing and ominous with that first segment, this one is pretty obvious. There's a woman who's confused... And by the end of it, she comes out of her fog and the lights come back on.
0: It might have Lynch's style. I don't know. It's all in the dark. I can barely see what's going on.
3: Well, there's very little that I see Lynchian about this. It honestly feels to me like the two had writer's block, ordered Chinese, and decided to write about it endlessly.
2: Well, keep in mind, David Lynch loves a slow pace. For him to dwell on clip dialogue and inference, I think this is, to some degree, his sense of humor. And I did get a laugh. Both my mom and I got a big laugh out of this because it's so drawn out because you're sitting here leaning forward like when is this going to connect here she keeps confusing things that are said in the present with things that have happened in the past he went out to get some chinese food and the power went off and now he's back with it and she thinks that the bellboy is Chinese. She thinks that her doctor is going to be Chinese. She talks about being at a lake and a fish coming out and talking to her. What kind of fish? A Chinese fish. That was the laugh. That that finally broke us. We had We had been waiting so long that when she said a Chinese fish, I don't know, it just was funny.
0: I was holding on to this dialogue because this is all dialogue because it's two people sitting in the dark. And again, there's like interesting bits. But I think this is the longest segment. This goes on longer than the other ones by a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's just too much.
2: Let me put it a different way. This is the one that they cut out the least amount of lines. That first play, they chopped a lot. And this time, it's they left almost every word in.
3: They should
2: have not done that. Uh, I agree one thing to note though, the bellboy he spoke with an Irish brogue this time. I don't know whether he loses it over the decades uh, of the twentieth century. He doesn't age. I'll give him that or he ages very well, but he talks differently in this one. He's talking like an Irishman, and yeah he I don't know whether he, if there have been more episodes of this, he would have developed other accents or do- other looks, but that may have been a way to develop this character, our star. But here's the thing. All right. So let's just get to it. This woman has obviously experienced trauma and it was in an era where they didn't know how to treat her and she just got worse. And they're from the Midwest and in Oklahoma, you just don't talk about mental illness. And a horrible thing happened to them and nobody processed it well. And now they've come to New York to what they really need is grief counseling. I'm hoping this doctor is a psychiatrist, but he may
3: just be there to give her a lobotomy. I'm not sure. They don't really go into the doctor later on. I guess theoretically he calls on the phone. We never really know because she's the one who talks to him and she's insane. But supposedly he calls. At first, I thought maybe she had cancer because he's very vague. You're going to see a doctor. This doctor is going to get you help. But then, yeah, when you see her breaking down, I figure it has to be a shrink. And a shrink in 1930s, the best she can hope for is electrodes to the head, right? I agree. And
2: the thing is, I feel like... Yeah, much like the first segment, it's all about inference, reading between the lines, what's really going on here, the suspense of of what is her condition and what has happened. I feel like they let that out of the bag. Pretty early on, we find out that their kid drowned in the lake. And so, why do we have to spend 20 more minutes getting her to the point of accepting that. To me, that should have been the climax to reveal that. That's the surprise where the light bulb comes on. But we sit in the dark for 20 more minutes.
0: We know she's crazy. She talked about a Chinese fish. The fact that they're going to go back and forth, like where she thinks he's with the Navy and is he not with the Navy? Like, it just goes on too long. We get the fact that, yeah, she's crazy or she's got some kind of psychological barrier going on to block out what happened with that child. Let's get there quicker.
3: The way I took it was we know that there was a child who died. Did she kill him? That was the only suspense I had. She's insane. I did wonder
2: that, yeah. To me, she seems pretty innocent. They seem like very good kids. And that's the one difference between the script and this is, I guess, because they wanted Crispin Glover for this, they went with uh, actors that are in their 20s. It was a middle-aged couple on the page, and she had been crazy for a lot longer. She had gotten worse over 12 years,
3: and here I think it's been like two since the child died. They said the child died two years ago, and I'm assuming that's what caused her break. So yeah, she went really insane really fast.
0: Okay, see, again, it's confusing because earlier they say it's been almost 17 years since... I think they've fooled around, so... What am I supposed to believe and what am I not? He was five and she was three, is what they said.
2: So, yeah, it has been 17 years.
3: And they, she also says there were five children at one point. She's all around. I guess eventually there's only the very poorly named Dan Bug.
2: Yeah, no, she is clearly, yes, drifts in and out of mixing stories and trying to find the truth is, again, the game of this theater. It's the idea of what can we really know and... In order for that to be compelling, we have to feel like there's something at the center of this to be revealed. But I guess... You know, I've read The Glass Menagerie. I I know what this is. This feels like a pale imitation of Tennessee Williams and just didn't have a whole lot of secrets to it, despite the way that it teased it out. The lights come on really, really late for the characters, but I knew what was going on within the first 10 minutes.
3: It really is dragged out way too long. Like, if this whole thing were three stories in a single one-hour episode, I might hate it less than I do. I wouldn't recommend it, and uh, no matter. There's nothing in here that is even at all recommendable for even commercial length. But, and I mean like a 30-second between television segments commercial. But... I would definitely not feel the tedium, the sheer mind-numbing, boredom, fingernail-biting anxiety of this continuing as they go round and round about Chinese food and the Navy and when he was enlisted and finally get to the goddamn point. Now,
2: wait a minute. I just want to throw it out there. You were, too, both of you were the ones that liked that opening of season two where the waiter just kept coming in again and again. Lynch has always played with slow time.
0: That was funny.
2: So the difference is you want it to be a comedy. You don't want this pace at a drama.
0: I got no problem with slow time. There's plenty of movies or scenes in movies or TV that are slow that I enjoy. It's all about the content here. This content isn't gripping when I'm seeing... Cooper laying on the ground bleeding in this 99-year-old bellhop keeps walking in and giving him thumbs up. Yeah, there's humor there. There's something entertaining about that that I could grasp onto. Again, maybe if I was a student of the theater, I'd be really wrapped up in this dialogue and the way they're delivering it. But as a TV show or as a movie, it's not very interesting.
3: Agreed completely, there was suspense with Cooper. Here, there's no attachment to these characters. And yes, Jacob, you nailed it on the head. The only thing I see this useful for is a collegiate theater exercise of students who want to put on something at the end of the semester and have no money to do it.
2: I do agree that it feels like it would work best as stage play. That To film it, certainly even as a movie is to ask a lot of the viewer, to ask them to come back week after week for a TV show, of course this didn't get picked up. Of course, There's TV show is all about hooking you. How do they keep you watching? You don't even have to like the episode or where the plot goes, but you have to like the characters and want to continue. And if this hotel room is just a place where couples meet and have barely comprehensible tension between one another then no, it was always going to be doomed.
3: Yeah, what was going on in this place before they built the hotel around the space? Did people just come there and talk?
0: (laughs) This is the thing. I remember doing creative writing, wanting to be a writer in college. And this, I thought this was fascinating, getting into this tedium and just this just average everyday stuff. And I could write pages of this. I'm glad it was never published because seeing it up on the screen is very boring.
2: Yeah, I mean, it can be done well. I just want to say I have seen this... On stage, not this particularly, but I've seen this style on stage and been really impressed with it. But I think it requires the immediacy of being in the same room as the actors. Watching it live is not the same experience as watching it on the screen. I also don't think that in this one, Alicia Witt is totally giving what she needs to as the mentally ill character. Crispin Glover is obviously dialing it down. It was kind of refreshing to see him not be so quirky.
3: (laughs) Admittedly, I didn't know he could play normal. Yeah. Yeah. But Alicia Witt, uh, you know, we saw her as Gerstein Heywood,
2: and she was the little girl in Dune. She's going to be in season three of Twin Peaks. Oh, yay. Lynch likes her. I'm not sure I do. I will say this. All three of these episodes are better than the one that they didn't make. I did read the unpublished script, what probably would have been the fourth episode. It's the third part of the Hotel Trilogy because Barry Gifford wrote three story set in this hotel room. It was in the 50s. It was based on his own life and that his mom believed in psychics. A psychic was actually living in this hotel room, but she was a fake. And while the mom was going to talk about how she could take advantage of a certain situation and money, the son met his grandmother, the ghost of her. And told her how to hide the money so that the woman wouldn't spend it. It was really cliched. It was a bad o. Henry and should not have been made. It would have been bad no matter who they cast, no matter who directed it. There's not a series here.
3: And yet I find it hard to believe it could be any worse than the three they did make. Well, then maybe we should just get to it. Please. <laughs> Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Hotel Room? Jacob,
0: I didn't hate it as much as I think you did, Arnie. I'll, I'll just say that I found nuggets of the dialogue interesting, and I saw potential there. If again, th- this feels like a first draft. I this should have been more developed, and it could have worked. I, I could see where this could work, but unfortunately, what we are presented just doesn't quite work. That the writing isn't as tight as it should be. Not just not as gripping as it should be for being so dialogue heavy. And what Lynch brings, again, not a whole lot of camera movement. We didn't talk about it, but I knew Lynch was involved because at Blackout, when the lights turn back on and everything fades to white, that classic Lynch move, I'm like, oh, Lynch finally did something Lynchian (laughs) in this series. But for the most part, yeah, failure. (laughs) Stuart, you talking about Lynch and his failures? That's what this ends up being. It may be interesting to some, But i I say skip it, not recommend. Stuart.
2: I want to defend this because I I definitely feel like I'm on a show with two people that dislike it a lot more than I did. I felt like all of them were vaguely okay. I did not mind watching it once. I had the same reaction to watching it in 1993 when it was on HBO that I do now. It just doesn't have a whole lot of momentum. With TV, to keep people watching and tune in week after week, you got to give them big hooks. And Lynch is a man that's not afraid of that. He can go big all the time, but I just don't think Lynch is here. I think Lynch had a couple free weeks, and he filmed this, and it just wasn't a series. So on that respect, as a TV series, I definitely can see why they didn't pick it up. It should be canceled. It should never have happened. In comparing it to other anthology hotel stories... I liked it better than four rooms, or at least some of those rooms. Two of those rooms were bad, and I feel like all of these rooms were better than that second room in Four Rooms. So The
3: women chapter of this had me longing for the witches of Four Rooms.
2: Longing. I don't feel like it's any better, but I do feel like this can be done better. Jim Jarmusch and Mystery Chain did it wonderfully. Neil Simon did it probably first back in the 70s. I like the premise is really the problem. And I don't mind the style in which they filmed this, but I think I'm going to give it a not recommend based on the writing. The problem for me is Barry Gifford. You want to have a writer who is going to challenge their audience to care and get invested a lot more than he does. And so it's been said that David Lynch makes the ordinary seem extraordinary and that Barry Gifford, in contrast, makes the extraordinary seem ordinary.
3: That's the problem here
2: is everything here feels too ordinary to recommend.
3: You know, I travel a lot. I usually stay in nicer places. I mean, not five-star, thousand-dollar-a-night hotels, but, you know, four-star, four-and-a-half-star. But sometimes, usually due to price line, or, you know, a decade ago when I didn't have any money, I've stayed in some bad hotel rooms. Uh, one actually had a green-brown substance smeared on the wall. I won't say it's shit, but I'm not gonna say it's not. One had roaches and bags of garbage in the stairwells and one had a shower that was so moldy or mildewy or something i felt dirtier getting out of it than when i got in it i've never stayed a whole night in any of these types of rooms i always left sometimes i got a refund sometimes the manager was a dick and wouldn't give me one i always left hey if this anecdote's boring you it's on par with one you'd hear in hotel room we'll talk about the chinese food delivery I would leave this hotel room as well. And in fact, I'll give it this badge of honor. It's now the worst thing I've ever reviewed for now playing. It has beaten Jupiter Ascending, which in turn beat the Aviator for the thing I hate most for ever having watched for this show.
0: Wow. I can't go there. <laughs> Creep Show 3? You'd watch Creep Show 3 before this again? No, sir, no.
3: Yes, Creepshow 3, any of those horrible sci-fi made-for-TV movies, Rave to the Grave, none of them did I hate as much as this. And-
2: Eraserhead, let's stay on topic here. Eraserhead, you had up to this point, I think, held that is the low point in Lynch's career, that he was an amateur that hadn't developed his style, and now this has gone lower than that.
3: By comparison, I love Eraserhead as much as Star Wars. With my hatred for
2: this. I'm wondering if some of this just, it's a matter of taste. You wouldn't have enjoyed this just because it, it is intentionally slow and ambiguous and doesn't have much of a dramatic payoff that by design.
3: Well, yeah, anything that doesn't have dramatic payoff
2: is badly written. No, that can be intentional. I mean, whether you like it or not, you're certainly entitled to that opinion, but it doesn't mean it's badly made. I think that, I think they made the episodes they wanted to make. And I think in that respect, it's more successful than movies where it didn't come together and they it, they shamble to put it together.
3: Just because they had a bad idea, but then realized that bad idea doesn't make this shit not stink.
2: No, well maybe it doesn't, but it to me, yes, a bad idea well realized. And I'm not even calling this a bad idea. I would still say that's better than watching a very
3: a very amateurish production. I would rather watch something where the camera leaves a room or something interesting happens. In that room if you have me longing for the bad segments of four rooms you fucked up royally sir i can't believe lynch made something so uninteresting Eraserhead may not have been something i liked at all but i'll get you this it got me thinking this got me thinking when is it fucking over
2: well i think there are things to mull over
3: i hate this i hate this i would lynch this
0: <laughs> got it, I we got it. <laughs> Any more bad puns you want to throw in there?
3: <laughs> yeah, all right. so Arnie
2: didn't like it i I would have predicted that, but not with the vehemence. I'm a little surprised that but i I think one thing that I'm learning about I think uh, in doing this show is boredom is the real enemy. and yeah, I'll give you this movie this show is one of the least interesting things we've covered. There's not a lot that happens here. I still see in the inference in the in the tension between the characters some very Lynchian things and some ideas that I think we're going to see play out in the future. Like next week
3: when we get to Lost Highway. The best thing I can give it is the tension between Mo and Lou. And it doesn't go anywhere, so it was storius interruptus. But yes, next week we are going from what I consider to be the worst thing I've ever seen of Lynch's. To what I would say of all I've seen, and I haven't seen everything. I will when we're done, but at this point the best thing i've ever seen of lynch's in regards to film
0: lost highway
3: no well i'm excited
0: i hear it's underrated by some
2: yeah we'll be talking about that in the book as well when that comes out but i'm excited to have the conversation first with you you're probably a bigger fan than i am
3: i do like it i've seen it many times but i wouldn't call it one of my favorites no well we will be talking about that next week and in the meantime If you want to hear me discuss David Lynch TV, I do like. And if you want to support this show, head to nowpeakingpodcast.com. You can hear us review every episode of Twin Peaks. And you know what? Some of those episodes were bad. The worst episode of Twin Peaks is a million times better than the best segment of Hotel Room.
2: Nothing here is as bad as American
3: Chronicles. I'm glad we didn't cover that one. This show makes me long for the Billy Zane arc from Twin Peaks again. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next week, don't wait too long, Mo. Remember, don't wait too long.
1: You guys are weird. You got a game going that I ain't seen before. Game? What do you mean? Game! Just let me get dressed and get out of here. I don't care what's behind it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Great, baby. Great. Now that you've heard this movie review, head to nowpeakingpodcast.com to hear Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. You got my interest, Mo. And go to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews of all the Twin Peaks-related books and audiobooks.
3: He's a specialist, honey. He'll know what to do.
1: Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, The James Bond Films, and more. Far out. You're into fairy tales, huh? Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Uh, before the White Knight takes out his sword, he has to pay tribute to the fair maiden. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. She hands me a 20. Will this do? She asks. I dig in my pocket for change, but she stops me,
3: puts her hand on my wrist. Keep it all, she says.
1: Whoa. Yeah. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Life goes on, though. If you're lucky. I felt lucky once. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums, where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com.
3: You really want me to?
1: Absolutely. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'll tell everyone we know. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You don't have a useless bone in your body. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Off to the wars, honey. Be back in 20 years. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. He has a nice voice, Danny. (laughs) He has a good voice. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended.
0: Really, you're wondering how soon can I get this guy out of my apartment so I can catch her
1: The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. I said anything that hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. Now playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.
3: You're not walking out on me, you bastard.
1: Oh no? Just watch me, babe.
3: This one stars a spoiled woman named Sasha, played by Deborah Unger. And because of the YouTube quality, I thought the opening credits had Deborah Winger. And so I'm looking <laughs> for Deborah Winger this whole damn movie. va boom
2: Yeah, she's looking <laughs> real good.
3: I'm like, Deborah Winger's really held together.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, she was off hanging with Bedouins at this time. Like, she walked off some film set and disappeared for two years.
3: <laughs> so, De- played by Deborah Unger, who I don't know... <laughs> you never seen Crash Cronenberg? Yeah, I mean, I've seen her, but I don't know her.
0: You see a lot of her in that movie.
2: It's also worth pointing out it was written by Jay McEnry, who is... Uh, he was a part of the whole... McEnerny. Yeah, yeah.
3: I think it's Innery though. I think that is how you pronounce it. I've known many people who spell this name that way, and it's McInerney, but okay. 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 I mean, I'll say it both ways. How about that? And I'll look it up and it, when I edit it. <laughs> yes. It's
2: J. McInerney. Is that what you... Yeah. And J. McInerney... Now I can't even remember how I said it. J. McInerney... McInerney and Mc... Yeah. M- M- McInerney. Uh, yeah. And J. Mac. Me- I'll be calling him Jay for the rest of this. So. <laughs>
3: Like next week, when we get to Lost Highway. Well, yeah, the best thing I can give it is the tension between Low, low and Moo. The best thing I can give it is the tension between... So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And uh, I need an end line. There's very few lines in this that are worth writing down.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, there's tons of lines in this. You just don't like any of them.
3: <laughs> Very few worth writing down.
0: All I have is lines written down because that's all there is here.
3: Can you send me yours so I can look through some, <laughs> some quotes? I'm looking through them now. I can send you the whole play. Is it digital?
2: You got digital? No. Oh, well, that doesn't help. I'll mail it to you.